Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Rosetta S. Elkin, author of Plant Life, The Entangled Politics of Afforestation, published this year by University of Minnesota Press. Dr. Elkin, welcome to the show. Thank you. So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure thing. I'd be glad to. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk about um, one's writing, especially now that it's being read. Um, I'm a landscape architect and designer, so most often I work in physical environments. And so being on the published page is part of what, only part of what I do. I'm also an academic. I teach at Pratt Institute and I'm the academic director of the Master in Landscape Architecture Program there. Um, so that ties in also to the impetus for writing the book. Um, it was truly a firsthand experience with afforestation that drew me to my interest in studying it. Um, and, uh, and in the reality that, uh, institutional partners, non-governmental agencies and large state agencies are involved in planning and designing extremely large swaths of the planet without community involvement, without social buy-in and definitely without designers. Um, and so that's really what drew me to to writing about afforestation and ensuring that I tried to have a, a global reach across these varied geographies that seem to insist that tree planting is is uh, is is a practice and is a practice maintained by by forestry. Okay, and your book centers on three major case studies of these really large-scale afforestation programs. So what are these three case studies, and why did you choose these three to focus on? Um, well, maybe before I launch into that, it's worth defining afforestation um, 
I think a lot of people assume they know what it means, but it's very often conflated with reforestation. Uh, Afforestation is the planting of trees in otherwise treeless environments. So these are biomes without enough uh, annual rainfall to really support tall woody species. Um, It's inserting a tree into a treeless environment. And that is really not an ecological approach. It's a decision. It's a, it's a design decision. In fact, it's much closer to horticulture than it is to ecology. Um, so there's a history of doing that, uh, of course, in drylands, in, in drylands that include grasslands and prairies and steppes and deserts themselves. Um, aridity, um, you know, is, is a, is a tough, biome to endure as a human. And so, of course, we plant trees. We plant trees to survive and to thrive. Um, but but we don't necessarily plant millions of them to thrive uh, in drylands. So um, the, the book really problematizes large-scale dryland planting or planting in treeless environments because it those large scale projects that are truly super continental uh, across continents, um, they, they, they do not thrive for the most part because they're absent relationships. Those relationships I was just describing between a, someone who decides to plant a tree and take care of it and benefit from its shade and maybe bud break and seed resin, uh, even bark. Uh, but when you decide to plant millions of trees, the question really emerges of who's benefit. Um, and what resources these trees are are drawing from or drawing away from. So so the three projects, of course, land in global drylands, which overlap incredibly um, accurately with global grasslands, both being treeless environments. The first uh, that I study um, and present is actually, well, it's not true. <laughs> the, it's it's not the first. I start with the newest one, but I wanted to say uh, that chronologically, um, it's the, the tradition of afforestation starts uh, in the Prairie States Forestry Project uh, with a project in the United States through the New Deal from you know, super continental, meaning it stretches from Texas to the Canadian border. Um, Chronologically, the next one would then be in um, in China, which is called the Three North Shelter Belt System. Uh, and there are actually many names for that project, but that's the one I use because it's the most recent. It's changed names because it has been ongoing for nearly five decades. Um, and so it kind of morphs and changes along the way, depending on the particular concern, environmental concern that it's answering to. And that is mostly in the western portion of China, Mongolia, um, maybe the fringes of Tibet, depending on where you count it, but pretty much across the hue line, which I describe in in the book, where there isn't a lot of development uh, in China and it is mostly dry land. That project is ongoing, so it represents the, the current trends in afforestation, whereby the Prairie States project is really a historical project um, that's no longer active. And then I, I talk about um, the 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 chronology earlier. In fact, the the most recent project is the um, African uh, case, which is called the Great Green Wall. But in the book, I start with that one. And one of the reasons I start with it is 
to really underscore that this isn't a historical procedure. It's it's extremely um, enduring and it endures to this day. The African project is really on the books. It's a committee. There have been a few pilot projects, but it is slated to cross the entire sub-Sahara from Jakarta to Djibouti, uh, absolutely continental and uh, across so many varied cultures, systems, histories, um, and lifestyles. So those are the three cases, broad, extremely broad, uh, both in their context, but also um, in their in their geophysical uh, realities. And yet, in each case, the answer seems to be let's plant trees. Yeah, you mentioned the the African Great Green Wall being kind of the most current one. And I know I've definitely seen like memes and stuff about it. Like, isn't this so cool that they're going to plant you know, a huge number of trees all across Africa. And I, I kind of feel like we need to to make a meme of your book that we can say, well, maybe that's there's more to it than that uh, when people post that. Um, yeah, it, it would be nice. I mean, it the meme is so one-dimensional, but so is just the simplicity of let's plant trees. And, you know, it's, it's just not that simple. Yeah, and so that, that kind of leads to the next question, which is that, you know, we we hear about these tree planting schemes as ways to respond to things like climate change. Um, But you argue that the the roots of this kind of afforestation actually go back to the same kind of colonial relationships that are where climate change comes from, uh, too. So can you talk a bit about that, that historical roots of afforestation as a a strategy for, uh, quote unquote, improving the environment? That's a fantastic question. Um, I it is is one of the reasons I, I suppose it, the, the subtitle is the entangled politics. I mean, it's so hard to untangle a lot of this, and I feel like a lot of my research was learning how to do that um, because I also didn't. I took for granted that planting trees was always somehow an environmental good, um, but it, it really is a form of of yeah, um, land taking, right? Uh, and it started with the Timber Culture Act, which you know was a federal policy, 1873, um, a federal policy coming from Congress, whereby westward expansion was not was not going to be a failure, right? The Homestead Act was a bit of a failure, so they replaced it with the Timber Culture Act, and that was really a way to secure resources. Um, in otherwise treeless environments. And um, if you cultivated timber and you could prove that you did cultivate timber on lands devoid of timber, you could claim up to 160 acres. Um, I keep saying you, one could is probably better English. In other words, claiming land that was never theirs to claim, right? Um, The idea that the prairies were empty um, that the gra- that a grassland is empty or devo- devoid of life is not just um, because there's treelessness evident, uh, which is an affront to the arborized industrialist coming from the east where there are forests. It's sort of a front that there are no trees, and so let's put trees in. Um, it's also a kind of cartographic... Um, uh, 
a trick, I suppose. There were a lot of maps that were uh, indicating where forests' extents were. And of course, they, for the most part, stopped at the 100th meridian. And I'm talking about the American case, of course. And they stop at the American meridian because there's not enough rainfall to support tree cover. Um, but the prairies weren't empty, and we know that. And the skillful cultivation of trees is also the skillful cultivation of its inhabitants and the taking of land. So um, under the guise of tree planting good, uh, I really allowed um, this so-called uh, void in the American territory to begin to be filled, filled with homesteads and filled with a staggering number of copious tallies and monitoring programs and um, in, in the effort to cultivate timber for a growing nation. Um, so there's no, there's no question that historically afforestation is linked to this kind of incentive based policy, right? And, uh, you incentivize land ownership, um, in, in more recent cases, uh, carbon offsetting is the incentive. Uh, if you can report back to the UNCCD that you've planted X number of trees in X number of hours, then, um, you're, you're, you're doing good for the environment. You'll get an award. Uh, you'll get more funding from other agencies, and uh, and that is um, an economy that doesn't often land for those who really need it in a lot of the grassland, dryland villages that are largely nomadic. Let's say if we talk about Africa and Western Mongolia, um, the plains is of course just been augmented by agricultural production once trees failed. So the language of authority that that trees aren't there and therefore we need to plant trees is is linked very much to or what I what I claim and what I'm trying to suggest is that one of the reasons we like tree planting is because it's easy to count trees and it's easy to feel good about the counts. It's it's pretty remarkable to say that um, a country is planting a billion trees. Uh, It's it's also very easy to use those statistics to obscure how much deforestation is actually going on. Um, And we don't have accurate tallies for deforestation. Unfortunately, you, you, we can't really neither we, the great, you know, generalization of we, but really scientific evidence does not account for any way to count um, and make sense of the numbers of species lost through deforestation and slash and burn planting. So we, we know, we know really well how to take things down. And we think that planting is the opposite or the, you know, the sort of benefit. Um, but it, it does. It isn't. We. <laughs> I hope it's kind of obvious that it isn't. Um, we can't fight deforestation with afforestation. Yeah, and I think that that makes a good connection actually into some of the authors that I've talked about or talked to recently. Um, for you know, listeners that have been listening for a little while, that um, the way that things like carbon offsetting programs fixate on things that can be easily counted and lose all of the the context that goes along with it. And so it's like, okay, that's a tree that counts for, you know, X amount of your carbon offset. There you go. It's good. Um, Without understanding the the context in which that tree is, is growing, where it's being planted, you know, whose land it's on, all of those kind of other dimensions 
that you can't summarize in a number. Absolutely. And those simple questions are the the most basic, even if if you were to plant a tree this afternoon, you would just ask very basic questions. You would ask, what species am I planting? What water resource is it drawing from? Uh, How do I plant it? What tools do I need? What age is it? Um, Some really basic questions that we're really used to working through horticulturally, but once you reach a million trees, you're talking about an ecology. It's 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 creating a scale that is is so regional in its extent that it's actually pacifying the biome it's replacing, um, and so it's another form of destruction, right? And 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 it, it's it's assumed that it's additive because we're planting something or there are numbers, but it's just it's easier to count individual tree units than to explain the quantity of destruction, forest, and otherwise unfolding across centuries, right, for resources. Um, And uh, so I I do, I agree, it is... um, it, it is really in the it's it's one of those topics that's in the margins often. And I, I thought it would be um, uh, timely to 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 bring it into the body text because um, all three cases were funded and supported based on, you know, the the issue of the times, if I can put it that way. So in the prairies, of course, it was the Dust Bowl. It was the blowing of the dust. We understand that now is the greatest man-made disaster. Uh, thanks to that quote, I just quoted Ken Ken Burns, or the other quote he, he uses is, Congress made the Dust Bowl. Well, whatever it is, we turn the soil of the prairies. And that Dust Bowl was uh, a series of dust storms that were extremely devastating socially, culturally, economically. Um and the answer was, let's plant trees. And then, you know, decades later, when uh, airborne particulate was plaguing growing cities in China, the answer wasn't out of control burning of fossil fuels. It was, let's plant trees. And now in Africa, with desertification claims and um, pastoralism shrinking, the answer seems to be let's plant trees. And these are three very different crises. And so when I think of your earlier question, uh, you know, it's it, we, we are in a climate emergency. I, I just don't think it's um, a smart evolution of 20th century environmentalism to bring the let's plant trees into the 21st century. It, it has not proved uh, a durable response. So you mentioned the the question, the very basic question of, you know, what species of tree are are you planting? So let me ask that about the case studies that you examine in the book. What species were we dealing with? And, you know, who, who was choosing them? Why, uh, you know, and how appropriate were the species that they were planting? Yeah, it's... You know, I, I try to cover a century of environmentalism. So there have been so many species and so many tests and trials and exchanges and plant collections and nurseries uh, funded and, and distributed across these extremely large uh, regions. So it, it was it was a tough nut to crack for me to figure out how to do justice to the life of the plant um, at that scale. So I chose to focus on one plant in each case rather than 
sort of a broad sweep against uh, long lists. But it is those lists that that worry me as a landscape architect, as a designer. Um, they're usually extremely redacted, reduced, and um, plant life is so much more than a reduced list, a binomial, a resource, a technique, an agricultural exercise, right? It, 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 it is a, a, a sentient organism that we share the planet with. We uh, are entirely dependent on plants for the conditioning of our air and the rise of our species. So I th- I'm trying to bring back to the reader this reminder that plants are breathing organisms, which is why I I use the word plant life and not just plant or not just tree. Tree has become this sort of logo for um, an organism. And so I go through a history of how we've pacified aliveness um, from plants and kind of grade human life as somehow the most living species on the planet. and uh, and and by focusing on three trees, I hope to bring I hope to bring to the reader um, a bit more imaginary about how we could think about plants, um, their different behaviors, the way they signal chemically, their underground rhizomatic spread, um, their lifespans, their 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 past, their present, their future, um, and and that we aren't actually dealing in individual plant units, which is what the count aggregates, right? But we're, we're working with other organisms um, to, to try to register a very localized project as a solution to a raging national crisis. Um, so, so yeah, I chose out three species uh, that are not necessarily emblematic of each project, but they became so for me. Um, I I also include uh, many of the lists that are available for these projects. So you can see more plants than the ones uh, I I describe in depth. Um, But I I study and offer the reader Fate Herbia in the African case, which is pretty remarkable because it it has a reverse uh, phenology, which means that basically it loses it leave, its leaves when all the other plants have leaves, um, which is great for agricultural and subsidence farming because it lets air and light and circulation and, of course, water um, down to crops. Um, and it has a fantastic relationship in that way with 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 the cycles of, of human habitation. The problem with fate herbia, if, if we can call it that, is that it doesn't take well to nursery standards. So it's very, very difficult, or it doesn't like to behave with a plastic pot um, and uh, billions uh, of counts. So it is left off lists, not because it isn't a fantastic tree for afforestation because it is extremely adapted to the environment, um, but it, it just, it maneuvers its way around uh, human gain. So those are the kind of examples I... I, I try to bring to bear the, the, the fact that some plants want to work well with humans and some plants thrive and some plants don't. And they reproduce and they behave in ways that really deserve notice, not just biologically, but also historically. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, and then your answer there, you use the term plant behavior, uh, which you also use throughout the book. And that kind of jumps out because I think a lot of people would say, well, plants by definition don't have behavior. Um, but I think you're you're essentially arguing that that kind of thinking is kind of part of the problem of, of treating plants as these kind of inert objects rather than like beings that do stuff. <laughs> I like that beings that do stuff. Um, I... I think it. I, I plants absolutely behave. Um, I think anyone who even has a, 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 a window planting or a house plant or a, a tough plant at the corner of their house know know very well that plants behave. Um, I, uh, I I I think that's important to underscore because it, it's part of this. Yeah, like you say, a kind of stride that I'm I'm hoping um, to build on, where 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 botanical knowledge isn't just the sort of um, um, practice of science itself and botany itself, but that plants are are really our our collaborators on the planet, and um, and and although they've been fragmented by human systems, they. They, they really still incredibly uh, thrive and survive through all of our techniques and all of our surveys and all of our professional standards. And, and, and I think a lot of traditional knowledge brings us that uh, and land-based practices remind us uh, of that. But a lot of botanic scholarship kind of leaves out the aliveness of, of the plant. And, and, more, uh, and more recently, uh, plant behavioral um, ecologists and environmentalists are are looking at how uh, the exploitation of plant life is is it perhaps needs to be overcome. And what I've done is I've tried to pair that with the uh, the foundations of afforestation to to show a very extreme example of the kind of love of plants that seems to be. Um, importantly uh, and remarkably a conviction of our of our times and yet we're still go going through this um, plantation uh, framework that does, doesn't acknowledge uh, the behavior and temporal difference of other organisms throughout uh, the book mapping and spatial thinking come up uh, a bunch of times so can you talk about how how mapping is employed and the, the kind of the role it plays in these afforestation projects sure well it, it it's funny it, I, I really enjoyed your first question I'm still thinking about it because um, the link to climate change and the reality of deforestation metrics they're also linked to cartography Um we have a tendency to fly over large regions when, you know, when we need to make sense of them now. So even, I mean, sure, airplanes, helicopters, and now drones, whatever it is, if, if you're going to, to um, plan a, a continentally scaled project, you can't do it on foot. And so as soon as, as soon as you get up and over the kind of basics of what the territory is about, what the ground is made of, what the land 
um, that the agency of the land, um, you, you kind of, you, 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 you also lose the relationships that are occurring in that, in that forest, in that grassland, in that prairie. Um, and, and that's what cartography, especially cartography, I should say, um, in particular, um, that is a, a tool of, of geography, um, does uh, when it tries to make sense of, of, a, of a large area. So this was especially employed um, with large for- scientific forestry and afforestation schemes, um, for instance, in Africa by the French government um, in um, in in settling the American plains uh, as well. And so when when you make a map, you put on the map only what you need to show. And we know very well from a great deal of um, our colleagues' incredible work um, that that maps are are highly politicized. Um, the, the the tricky friction kind of emerges when you use a map uh, very in a very um, particular way for very particular means, and then you you market it. Uh, you use the, you talked about memes, but nowadays this isn't just about appealing to Congress to fill in the non-forested areas with forested areas, but this is now uh, flying over areas of, of degradation uh, due to large industry and claiming uh, that it can be uh, afforested uh, without understanding any of the dynamics that are going on on the ground. Um and that's that's a really a, a miscalculation and a tremendous kind of misadventure, if if I if I can, um, that that um, generates a false reading often of of the land itself because it's trying to take in what we call cover cover being canopy cover the amount of canopy that or amount of photosynthesizing area that a certain region has or more importantly doesn't have so when you're dealing with treeless environments it's very easy to claim that they're lifeless when you're doing a flyover even though on the ground uh, you know we understand very well how alive um, a grassland can be. So we need to have our feet on the ground to understand how these projects can benefit um, local communities, cooperations, uh, interlocking uh, environments, villages, nomadic and settled cultures. um, and, And unfortunately, the flyover just doesn't do it right, and neither does the map that comes out of the the flyover. So, um, the the basically the the plant just gets left out of that exchange. Um, and I'm also, of course, suggesting that plants and people are interconnected. And so, as soon as you leave the plant out of that exchange, you're also leaving the incredible, um, yeah, social life on the ground. Yeah. So as you had said earlier, your background is in landscape architecture. Um, well, we're here on the Geography Channel, probably have a lot of geographers and people in related disciplines among our listeners. So I wanted to ask, you know, for a, a topic like this that is, is very interdisciplinary, you know, the people from a lot of different disciplines um, do work that relates to these kind of, of issues, what do you think is kind of the the unique perspective that can come to this from the landscape architecture field? What is that 
you know, your, your disciplinary home, I guess, what does that kind of bring to the, the question? Well, I'll, I'll start by saying that I, 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 sometimes my disciplinary clothing doesn't fit very well. So I'm very, <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of instinctively multidisciplinary. Uh, landscape architecture itself is a, a quite a, a nascent field uh, by comparison to many other disciplines that might be listening, including architecture, archaeology, the humanities, of course, the sciences. And so landscape architecture, I enjoy as a field because it, 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 uh, it kind of, it's young and because it's young, it's being shaped and it's being formed. And, um, it seems to me as very well placed to help us reckon with some of the environmental issues that necessarily include humans, um, Landscape architecture has always included humans. It's never been the sort of us and them, uh, the human or non-human or other kind of dichotomies. Once you understand the human agency of design, you understand that you're a part of it. Um, and so we've been designing landscapes for 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 as long as we've been thriving on the planet. Uh, it's just not necessarily been categorized as such. And I think landscape architecture is is really exceptional because it can start to bring together um, a lot of these issues in environmental politics um, that are not often uh, um, that are not often, I suppose, brought to bear between the humanities and the sciences because we borrow from both. Uh, that being said, to my point about my discipline's clothing, if, if I put it that way, which I think I did. Um, I, I really, I really love the word landscape. I, I understand the word architecture and I understand my discipline for its affiliation, but I also work in landscape ecology. I work in landscape history. I work in through a field called landscape studies. Um, landscape itself is such an interesting term because it wants for that modifier because otherwise it's so ambiguous it's so beautifully ambiguous in fact because it it is almost like the word plant uh one of those words that we're constantly trying to define so um i think of myself as a landscape scholar perhaps or a landscape thinker and when you think about landscape you you necessarily have to think about space about the spatial ramifications of of any idea of any theory of not just deforestation as a political act but the actual physical um ramifications for instance um and so it was very important to me that the book take on um not just the problems of afforestations itself as a, a an act of a fundamental failure i suppose uh, of environmentalism but also take on what the tree does once it's in space, in place, what the social life around those trees become, uh, and also the typologies of design that land like windbreaks and shelter belts and farm fields and, you know, start to bring in um, the, the, I, I suppose start to do justice to the fact that it's super continental and yet it lands somewhere, right? So we can talk uh, to very large scale cartography in geography and we can speak to the region and we can 
talk about geology, you know, within that, but until you understand the ground that's under your feet and you dig a hole in the living soil and decide to insert a plant into it, you know, that until you've gone through that whole, um, all of those scales, uh, it's hard to call it a design project. Right. So I see these I see these um, afforestation uh, initiatives as the largest design projects on the planet. Um, they're they're doing everything, um, everything uh, for better or worse that uh, the implications of, of design have uh, in a place. The difference, I guess, just to end on that is, you know, I work with scientists, I work with people in the humanities and there's a lot of talking about things. And um, if I can make up a word, I would say that, you know, there's a lot of abouting in academia. And one of the reasons I like my profession is we don't just about, we actually test, try and uh, work through applied knowledges and land-based practices to put theory to work. So we're moving towards the end of our time here. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to give a, a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing this book. That is very kind of you. Um, yeah, of course, there were so, so many uh, individual people. I, I definitely have to thank a couple of my colleagues in Europe, Hrit um, de Bloch and Eric Svichendau. And I definitely want to thank Keller Easterling and Julian Raxworthy for, for reviewing and supporting the book um, and uh, my academic institutions for, yeah, pushing the envelope along, along with me. Um, and now I can thank you too. <laughs> so thanks for having me uh, on your show. You are, are very welcome. Um, and that leads us to our final question, which is what are you working on next? Well, um, I have an active practice, so mm-hmm. I'm working on uh, some really interesting uh, adaptation projects, climate adaptation. I'm working on a shoreline erosion project in Quebec and working with the community um, on on um, land that's been left behind after relocation schemes. And I'm working on uh, a wildflower meadow in Chicago after a great deal of aggressive uh, cut and cut and plow uh, agriculture. And, um, and I am working on another book and it is called The Landscape of Retreat. And um, I, I might be a little premature to talk about it, but it is another case study book. Uh, um, I, I'm trying to unpack the, the use of case study in different ways. So hopefully you can see that in, in this book, but The Landscape of Retreat is forthcoming um, and it will, it will um, work through retreat, relocation and rebuilding um, in, in, um, in a lot of vulnerable landscapes around the world. All right. Well, definitely keep my eyes out for that. That sounds really interesting. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure to talk about the work. You just heard a conversation with Rosetta Elkin, author of Plant Life, The Entangled Politics of Afforestation, published this year by University of Minnesota Press.